Welcome to another episode of This Engineering Life, the undergraduate series. I'm Rebecca Simmons, an associate professor of the practice of mechanical engineering and material science at Duke University. I'm joined with Raina, Sydney, Priya, and Richard, all undergraduate engineering students also at Duke University. In this episode, we're talking about engineering and ethics. We interview both professors and students to get their perspective, experiences, and insights in ethics while at Duke University. Thank you for joining us. Okay, this is Becky, and I am here with Professor Knight. And Professor Knight, would you please introduce yourself and also talk about your role with ethics at Duke? Well, first, thanks, Becky, for having me on. I, this is my first experience with a podcast, so yes. it's exciting. We're so excited. Uh, I'm a mechanical engineering faculty member. I've been here since 1985 and uh, have been involved with ethics off and on as I taught design off and on for quite a number of those years. Uh, recently, we've evolved uh, ethics uh, it, in our curriculum uh, to a new level and a new scope, uh, integrating it into more of the design curriculum. So that leads to the next question. See, how has ethics and how it's being taught evolved over these years? So um, I know I had you as a professor for a couple of classes when I was an undergrad, was very lucky to have you. I remember talking a little bit about ethics, but I don't remember really having necessarily classes dedicated. Um, so how have you seen that changed and how do you feel about the changes? Our uh, approach to ethics uh, and engaging the students with ethics has evolved um, uh, gradually sometimes, but recently fairly extensively and quickly uh, over the years uh, as we've instituted new uh, kinds of engagement and, and new levels of engagement in different parts of the design curriculum. Um, in part, that's enabled by changes in our curriculum, bringing design in at a much more sophisticated level to freshmen and enabling discussions of ethical considerations there. Uh, and then it continues through the courses that have some direct relevance to design, culminating in the capstone design sequence. And um, so I think for me personally, Things have evolved uh, to more away from uh, telling them about um, uh, questionable ethical practices and decisions that have been made in history and talking about disasters uh, and uh, more to a discussion with the students because students themselves are thinking about these things pretty deeply. And by the time I see them to to do some some of my discussion sessions uh, in junior and senior year, the um, they have already been talking uh, in earlier classes, and so their their thoughts about this are more mature, I think, than in previous um, years or decades, if you will. I really agree because you have come into uh, some of my design classes for a discussion on ethics. And 
I never know how engaged the students will be. And every time it's been a fantastic experience because it truly is a discussion. There's a, they're answering questions, they're giving insights, and even saying, we want more, which is really good. That's what we want to see here, right? Yeah. Um, what kind of ethical dilemmas do you see students dealing with most at Duke? Do you see any reoccurring themes? The, the dilemma that <clears throat> students are facing, uh, many of them are timeless um, in terms of um, integrity, academic integrity, and, and doing the right thing. I mean, ethics fundamentally is about doing the right thing. And I think all of us have some sense of what the right thing is, but aren't always able to connect to an individual circumstance quickly enough to do the right thing. And uh, the pressure or the difficulty in doing that, I think, is magnified for today's students by the vast uh, scope and speed of communication and visibility. I think many people feel that their performance is visible to the world, even before it may be ready to be <laughs> visible to the world. Making decisions, good decisions under pressure, time pressure or other kinds of pressure, that's what I am increasingly trying to get at and show examples of how, how people did or didn't make good ethical choices under some kinds of pressure. And this is why I love that you come in your own classes, but also you come to other classes, mine, for example, and it's showing that you're another person that's part of this community. Um, and I've made it known to students too, like you don't have to struggle alone, right? Because there are a lot of these decisions that are, are huge and seem, you know, just almost impossible, but to know that there are other people ready to support you, right? Do you agree? Right. and and. Um... I, I wouldn't minimize any of the ethical choices that students face right here in their in their personal and academic lives, but many of them will go on to face bigger questions in the sense that there's more risk to more people or more money or things like that in the future. Uh, and uh, so in this context, uh, where the scope might be a little more limited here at the university, um, if you, if you practice thinking about the ethical side of decisions that you make uh, and um, just kind of practice doing the right thing when the stakes are not necessarily large, then it may equip you later with reactions uh, that will enable you to get to better decisions when the stakes are very large. Again, not to minimize, I mean, the stakes are large anytime. You, you are making a life decision or, you know, a decision about your personal choice of, of how to approach a, an interpersonal situation or a, uh, an academic integrity situation or something like that. Uh, but there are plenty of, plenty of circumstances where the stakes are small, and yet you still have the thought in your mind, what is the right thing to do here? And if you, if you, um, practice doing that. And I try, but I don't always do it either. Uh, if, if we practice it, uh, then in a, in a, um, a more um, fraught situation, we might be better equipped. Yes, I, I, I agree. And with all the support around 
And that um, that leads to my last question. Advice, that kind of was advice already. <laughs> you jumped the gun there on my question. But uh, other uh, advice that um, that you would give students navigating through these questions at Duke and beyond? Uh, yeah, I guess that that's a big part of my advice is, <laughs> yes. is practice. I mean, practice does make more or less perfect, I guess. The other thing is uh, you can think about connections to a wider world with decisions you make. And at first, the connections might not be apparent. But when you start to think in the ethics dimension, uh, you see that uh, doing the right thing extended into uh, a business situation, a business decision, uh, or a technology deployment decision. Uh, or an environment, something that has environmental consequences, uh, that uh, simply thinking about how the overarching principles of, of the decision-making might be the same or similar in those circumstances, just at a different scale. Yeah, I think that's great advice, right? And it's just um, also if you're, you're just generally nervous that a situation like that may occur by having this practice and have made these connections just gets you, gives you a little bit more uh, readiness. Right. And, and we, we often talk about um, disastrous consequences of decisions that have been made in engineering scenarios, you know, and, uh, and in, in recent terms, talking about this with students, we get, we get more into that more into a level of it and the emphasis that we take or the what we try to get out of those examples or what I try to get out of with the students now is more along the lines of what were the pressures the people were under and how did they influence the decisions that the people made uh, for good or bad uh, and how you know what was the interplay of those pressures and these people's internal compasses uh, to lead to decisions. That is fantastic. And now I know, just on a side note, you and I have specked out a lot of books. We've looked at a lot of (laughs) ethics and engineering books. So I'm going to go ahead and post some of our recommendations. If anyone is looking for some additional resources, check out our website and... um, Give us some feedback. If you know another book that you would recommend, let us know. We're always looking, aren't we? We are indeed. Uh, Our uh, own uh, consideration of ethics and our own understanding of it evolves. And a big piece of that is interacting with the students going forward. Yes. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello, this is Priya, and I'm here with Dr. Nightingale. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Dr. Kathy Nightingale. Hi, so I'm a senior and I am a double major, one of them being biomedical engineering, and I took BME 354 last semester, which was medical instrumentation Mm -hmm. with Dr. Wolf, and I recalled we had a part of the curriculum that was dedicated to ethics and the medical field and particularly how we would have to deal with it as a biomedical engineer or specifically working with medical device. So mm-hmm. I thought it would be nice to talk to you about what you guys discuss and teach the BME 354 students as far as 
ethics in the biomedical engineering field. So could you talk a little bit about that? Just sure. Kind of an overview? Absolutely. And, and I would say what we're teaching in the class is definitely evolving too. Mm-hmm. The, we've only introduced this segment of the class for the past two semesters. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, kind of formally as a segment. Mm-hmm. And we plan to continue that moving on. But our goal is to have students think about the ethical implications mm-hmm. of devices that we are learning about in the class, mainly because in working, we actually worked with the Keenan Institute of Ethics to develop Mm -hmm. some of the modules. One of the things I learned in teaching ethics is that it's really important to be considering it all the time so that when you're faced or a challenge comes up in your job, you already have been contemplating how you would behave in certain situations or certain challenges so that you have kind of a go-to reaction or a go-to, this is how I handle these types of situations. And so really bringing ethics more into kind of everyday discussion about Mm -hmm. the devices we're using is is, is a goal that we have. What are some examples of topics that you guys discuss as far as the biomedical scope? Yeah, so one that we definitely raise is this example of, it's a real-world example scenario that happened And it's related to how medical devices are regulated. Mm -hmm. And specifically, it's occurred several years ago with implantable cardio defibrillators, ICDs. Mm -hmm. These are devices that can be implanted into the heart and they, you know, are battery operated and Mm -hmm. they're expected to work for years and they monitor for a certain heart arrhythmia. And if it occurs, then they'll apply a defibrillation. Mm -hmm. And what happened is that it turned out that in the device that was approved for sale by the FDA, but in that process, then the FDA requires that the manufacturers also monitor any problems that happen or that are reported with the device Mm -hmm. while it's being marketed and they, they track it. But the FDA doesn't have a lot of people dedicated that can manage every single device out there. And so companies and engineers in the companies and people using the devices are required to kind of self-monitor and report and keep track of these things. And so what happened with this particular device was it turned out that one of the materials that was being used was sometimes, very rarely, it was a very rare event, but it could Mm -hmm. short. Right. Um, And that wasn't dangerous in and of itself. It just meant it wouldn't work anymore. But the person who had had the ICD implanted, you know, is assuming that if they go into arrhythmia, it would defibrillate them. Right. And that won't happen anymore with the, with mm-hmm. the short. It basically is in there, but it's not it's not working. And so the company, the engineers at the company and the quality control and the people that were working on it noted this has been happening. And so they were trying to figure out what was happening, but it was quite rare. And then it took a while to figure mm-hmm. out what the short was, like what was actually the cause of the problem. Right, because it was so rare. And then they went back and they told a few physicians for the patients who had had the problem, and it was fatal for the, the patients, for a few patients right. died. And then they went back and they did inform some of the doctors of these patients that this is what we think happened. But then that was kind of where they were going with it. And they didn't have a plan to expand and tell everyone about right. this. And what they were grappling with, I mean, there's in ethics, as I've learned, there's right versus wrong, which mm-hmm. has kind of a clear what one should do. And then there are right versus right. There's different choices that have different implications. Those right. are the much harder ethical gray zones to, to consider. In this case, it seems clear that this should be a stated risk that people should, Mm -hmm. to me, people should know. But one of the interesting things that they were considering was a surgery to replace the device. Apparently, as I've read about it, the risks of that 
they thought were greater right. than the risks of the failure and the risks of the failure and then someone needing the de- defibrillation with that failure. And so they were looking at this challenge of if you were to be informed that you have one of these models that could have had this problem, it's not even clear what they would recommend that you do. Right. Because the risk of replacing it could be worse. Could be worse. Now, the physicians in this whole debate were saying, yeah, but we should be able to talk to our patient, our subject right. about that and we should be able to make that decision. And so that's a clear to my mind, right versus wrong, they should have informed mm-hmm. everyone rather so than the company making that decision saying not to tell this isn't going to because sense. they think that one risk is greater than the other. Yeah. So right. who are the players? What are the implications of the choices being made in how a situation is being handled? All of that will appear different to the different people. Right. Those choices, the right? Different people who are stakeholders in the issue. Exactly. And it sounds like there were enough regulations to have a system to report the issues, but not necessarily what would happen once that issue is. Right. And there was a question of, does it need to be recalled? Does the device need to be recalled or does it need to be reported? And all of this was not going to be known, except that it was going to come out Mm -hmm. in in an interview. I think it was the New York Times had Mm -hmm. had investigated this and it was going to come out. And then they contacted the company for comment. And Mm -hmm. then right in that time frame, all of a sudden now things started to happen. But it wasn't clear that without that investigation, it's not clear that this would have come to light. Right. And in the and there was a severe action taken towards the company and they had to pay a lot of damages to patients. So in the end, it was really clearly they made the poor choice and mm-hmm. not informing people of the decision. After that whole incident, was there any addition of new regulations because of it or is it still a very gray area? So I believe that led to this now database where people are required to report. The FDA manages a database where you can report adverse events and Mm -hmm. people can now search it. So there's more transparency there. It did lead to some change in that space, but Mm -hmm. still as a developer of a medical device, as an engineer developing medical devices, you are responsible. The company is also ultimately responsible still for identifying problems and determining what actions to take. If the company decides, if it raises to the level to flag it with the FDA and say, we need to make a recall versus it's something we'll handle internally and and move on. That decision is still on the company. Right. Yeah. So you were talking about how this part of the 354 Mm -hmm. curriculum was really new the last two semesters. Last year, we kind of only read articles and had like a lecture discussion about it and a very brief homework. Are you doing something similar with that this year or Mm -hmm. are Mm -hmm. you doing something a little bit more? So I'm definitely continuing that piece. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, I've also decided we're going to have an ethical discussion kind of whenever they come up. And so another thing that we do in the class is we build an ECG device where you put electrodes on Mm -hmm. your chest and you can measure uh, your ECG and you Mm -hmm. can look at your heart rate and different things. But in talking with some different students, you know, and we give students the option to measure their own ECG or not, if they're not comfortable with measuring their own ECG, there's a concern that if you were to identify an arrhythmia, if a student were to measure Mm. their ECG and identify an arrhythmia, what what do you do with that? And it turns out Because they're not patients or human subjects in a clinical study, the IRB doesn't govern this. But kind of what we've come to is our ECG measurement devices are are pretty coarse. They're pretty noisy. And we don't actually think we would appreciate that in the signal if it were there. But there is this question of what does one do if you you think there's something. Mm -hmm. But none of us are trained well enough to interpret the signals to appreciate that. 
but that's kind of a concern worth discussing. What do you What do you do if you're testing out your device and you notice something? I think right. clearly, I think you inform the person and tell them that you don't really know if your device is working that well, but mm-hmm. I don't have this checked out. But the other question is this question of then we say we want everyone to share their data because mm-hmm. we do some statistical analysis. So everybody makes measurements on their team and then we pull the data and then we can analyze and ask some kind of questions about what factors affect heart rate, for example, right. in ACG. Is it okay for us to require that people share their data? You know, it's an interesting gray zone because some people might not be comfortable sharing their data. So, and certainly we always say we don't have to if you don't want to. But on the other hand, we do need a large enough number of people sharing mm-hmm. so that we can do the analyses and ask, kind of perform the, the experiments we want to perform. Because part of that data was measuring it after a certain amount of exercise, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. The kind of jogging in the place. I remember that. So it's kind of trying to bring in factors of how your previous exercise and health kind of affects it, right? Well, certainly how your heart rate will change with exercise. Right. That's a, if, if you search the literature, it's a known factor mm-hmm. that as you exercise, your heart rate goes up. Mm-hmm. But certainly people have different resting heart rates that are affected by how much they exercise. Right. So to their health outside athletes, of that experiment. Their health outside of the experiment, exactly. Typically, if you're an athlete and you exercise all the time, you generally will have a lower heart rate right. that if, than if you're not. And so kind of from the ethics perspective, this year we're going to talk about that in class and we're going to kind mm-hmm. of talk through all these questions that have kind of arisen that we've answered. But I thought it'd be more interesting than me just making a decision on this. Right. It'd be interesting to more bring the discussion. class in and say, what you know, what do you think we should do if you're uncomfortable, if you're not comfortable? Is it reasonable to ask people to share their data? Right. You know, because there's a lot of different places we could go. We don't have mm-hmm. to use our data. We could pull data sets from the web and use mm-hmm. those data sets to test these things too, right? It's just more interesting since it's a medical device class to build the device to actually use it right, to make a right. measurement, you know. But I think it's nice to have the class think through these things. Right. So that's an additional. Outside of that adding. one module, trying to make it apparent throughout the whole class. Right. And then talking about each device that we talk mm-hmm. about, what issues might be raised. But, you know, on the one hand, there's when you're the engineer, you're building the device. You're always making choices about cost of the components you're mm-hmm. going to use. You're always making engineering design trade-offs with respect to performance, acceptable accuracy and acceptable precision, mm-hmm. right, in the device that you're building. And those are design choice points that you're making, and you're making a choice. If you accept lower performance for lower cost, you might miss a diagnosis as a result. That's something that's going to weigh into how you make that choice. So when we were going through the ethics portion last semester, some of the other topics that arose were kind of about bribes and then also if you have limited resources, how do you prioritize certain people who have the same need? How do you prioritize that? Do you have any personal experiences with ethical dilemmas in the real world that you've faced in the past? Well, certainly I think we all do, but Mm -hmm. specifically regarding medical devices. Right. So no one has attempted to bribe me. (laughs) I I guess it was a, a little bit lower scale, like presence to try to have a little favor with or with oh, yeah. business partners you know, you or stakeholders. That. Certainly that does seem to be the case. I have not had that experience, mm-hmm. but that is more the case. I have colleagues, particularly I have heard about this in the context of the pharmaceutical industry mm-hmm. and working with clinicians. And I think clinicians themselves have more experience with this because right. people that are selling probably also with devices. Mm-hmm. I have a friend who I've heard about in the context of a person who is trying to sell a new drug 
a, mm-hmm. a new hormone replacement therapy, actually. And they actually asked the doctor to switch their patient from what they were using to this new one, mm. which that is an interesting ethical question because maybe it's better. But if the person's doing just fine, modifying right. your hormones can really impact your world. And so mm-hmm. it doesn't really make sense to switch just because there's one out there, you know. Mm-hmm. So I advise that friend to go to different doctors that wouldn't be <laughs> changing their meds every year just because. You right, know. right. Um, so that's, I guess, a personal experience mm-hmm. there. So you do hear about that where people are trying, you know, because clinicians buy devices to use in their practice. Right. And so salespeople will come in and, and try, will explain favor. how the device works, but mm-hmm. they may also want to gain favor. And so it is kind of a practice for them to, when they come, to maybe bring food or bring some Treat kind them of to dinner. Or yeah. I mean, that that is quite common, right. I believe. And yes, you have to figure out how you're going to navigate that because mm-hmm. it is definitely something that happens. Right. I agree with that. I don't sell medical devices and I also don't buy them. Mm -hmm. So I haven't been targeted in that way. Okay. That makes sense. I think that wraps up our interview. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. I know you have a really busy schedule, but I thought this was a really interesting topic, especially on the BME perspective. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. It was fun. All right. Hello everyone, this is Raina Verbensky and I'm here today with Caroline Razzo and she's going to give us a little bit of insight onto hands-on ethics exposure here at Duke. So Caroline, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Caroline. I'm a junior biomedical engineering major with a minor in chemistry on the pre-med track. So the junior class is kind of interesting in that we had to take our What Now class. We were the first class to go through What Now our freshman year. So obviously that was a little bit a while ago for the two of us, but do you have any thoughts about that class? Did you get anything out of it that you thought prepared you for like ethical dilemmas you might face specifically in your field of BME? I don't really think so. I think that the What Now class is more focused on just having conversations about like a good life and stuff like that. That's important to talk about, but not necessarily applicable to engineering ethics and like anything that would come up in my medical field in the future. Yeah, absolutely. I thought it was a lot focused on like meditation and like focusing like on how to handle our classes and stuff, which was helpful, but not necessarily like engineering related, especially. So that being said, you've done a little bit of work like in labs and stuff where you've had to deal with engineering ethics. Do you want to speak about your project and what you're doing? Yeah. So this semester, I just started working in a lab that does breast cancer research and we use mice for that. So we basically inject breast cancer tumors into the mice and the tumors grow and we give them different treatments to determine which ones are more effective. And this kind of brings up some ethical dilemmas because we're giving mice cancer, it's growing, it might decrease their movement and quality of life. But we do take a lot of measures to make sure that they're comfortable, like we give them extra toys, we make sure they're in a group of other mice because they're very social animals. And we're always measuring the tumor, so if the tumor surpasses a 15 millimeter measurement, we euthanize them so that they're not suffering. Have you had to euthanize any mice so far in your experiment? Yeah, that's so sad. Oh, you. No. <laughs> Poor <Yeah>. mice. <laughs> so do you feel like that's prepared you for like anything that you do, especially on the pre-med track? Like, do you feel prepared if you had to design your own experiment? Do you think you could be able to take those ethical considerations? Yeah, I think I've kind of realized how important it is to think about the research subjects themselves and not like, obviously, breast cancer research is really important. It's going to help a lot of people, but you kind of have to think of the other side of it and, like, the subjects you're using and stuff like that, not just, like, the end goal of the yeah, research. Yeah, absolutely. 
So I personally think that your lab project is really cool. Caroline and I are roommates, so I hear a lot about it. And she's like, I got to see my mice today. But do you have any advice, especially for younger students who are looking to get into labs and get a hands-on experience of that ethics and engineering? Yeah, so I found my lab through Muser, which is a website through Duke where the labs will basically post their projects and they're looking for undergrads to help so you can apply to three labs. And you just basically write like why you're interested and there's an interview process and basically you can get selected. But I think that the easiest way to get involved in research is to just go online and look up all the labs that are in your field of interest and just email professors saying, oh, I'm really interested in your project on this and that. And I was wondering if you would let me come in and help you out with it. And most of them are pretty open to that. So I think it's a good way. Yeah, perfect. Well, thank you so much, Caroline, for coming in and sharing a little about your project. I think it's really interesting. Yeah, you're welcome. Hi, everyone. Um, it's Sydney here. And today we're going to be talking about the What Now class at Duke, which is class offered for freshmen paired with their writing 101 where they can talk about ethics and mental health um, and we are curious to see how this relates to engineering. Hi my name is Emily I'm a sophomore here at Duke studying ECECS. Perfect so thanks Emily for joining us. Um, I'm curious can you tell us a little bit about the class like what did you do in it um, and what was it like what was the overarching goal of, of this course? Yeah so the what now class was paired with my 101 class and I took the Disney um, writing class, um, which we talked a lot about movies and stuff, but generally what now was very focused on like both ourselves and like mental well-being and sort of like taking that into account and also sort of the ethics side of it. So each class um, you met once a week and you have different sessions and based on your interests and whatever you'd like to do, some of them are active, some of them are more discussion-based, some of them are more um critical thinking like you write stuff down uh you can choose to go to one of them and it'll talk about different topics so every week there was a lot of variety going on perfect that sounds awesome and can you give an example of maybe something you learned in that class that you feel like you can apply to engineering or daily life yeah so i think one of them that i went to was talking about time management and sort of like how do we deal with all the stresses that are coming into our lives and stuff. Um, I know that there was like uh, a few Pratt students in my 101 class, so there was quite a few in the What Now classes that are all combined together. And that one was really helpful because um, not only did I get to hear a little bit about what other people's schedules are like and how they're balancing their time, they also gave us some helpful advice and like resources on like managing your time, making out a schedule and stuff like that. So that one was a discussion based one. So we were able to like talk things out and um, just like see what other people are thinking. That sounds awesome. And do you have any advice um, for someone who may be taking this course in the future or any advice to like the administrators who like want student feedback and like how they can improve, what they should keep, maybe what they should change a little bit? Yeah, I love the variety of things that they offered. So some stuff included taking walks in the Duke Gardens or um, getting crafty, doing like arts and crafts at the art center or um, like I said, meeting with professors and just having discussions. I think to, you know, give advice to future students, take this time really to relax and sort of unwind and stuff. It's very like, you know, not engineering, not hardcore STEM based class. And 
that's something that I liked about it. Um, I took it with a few of my friends. We would sort of just chill and do whatever the activity was. It was a good time to like reset. So go in with that mindset um, instead of thinking like, oh, I have to like discuss stuff because each week there's probably something that you'd like to do in there. That's perfect. Thank you so much, Emily, for speaking with us today. Um, and I hope all of you who take the whatnot class in the future um, also get something out of it just like she did. So thanks. This Engineering Life is brought to you and supported by the Pratt School of Engineering at Duke University. A special thanks to all of our interviewees for sharing their experiences. Our senior producer is Dr. Rebecca Simmons. Our editors are Priya Juarez, Raina Verbensky, and Richard Kim. Our theme music is from Silverman Sound, Audio Audix, and Kevin McLeod. Be sure to check back in two weeks when we'll be chatting about internships for engineers. You can find this episode and more resources online at thisengineeringlife.com. I'm Priya. I'm Raina. I'm Richard. And I'm Sydney. And this has been This Engineering Life. See you again soon.